They preach their gospel. Uh, lots of times in Pauline epistles, Romans, both Corinthians, First uh, Timothy, uh, some Old Testament, Jonah, Nehemiah, Job. Um, but it is good to be back in a gospel. And just having my heart every week just focused on Christ and his work and his identity uh, has been a blessing for my own soul. I'm eager to preach through the rest of the book and excited about that, but it has been a particular delight this Christmas season uh, and to be able to focus on Matthew's accounting, his Genesis story as the language that he uses, this word genealogy, it's his origin story of Christ has been beneficial and helpful to my own heart. And I trust it's been that way for you as well. And so this morning we'll finish off uh, Matthew's retelling. So we'll be in Matthew 2, 13 through 23, down through the end of the chapter there. Uh, one, one way to think about it here at the beginning, uh, maybe a big idea to start seeing your brain. Let me take you to the Grove Park Inn. I don't know. I'm curious. How many of you have ever been to the Grove Park Inn or stayed at the Grove Park Inn up in Asheville? Um, my wife and I were able to be there this past uh, Monday night, and they have the annual or national gingerbread house competition. Every year they host this. Uh, the winner this year is not pictured here. I'll talk about this lady in just a moment. Uh, but it's of an Indonesian meeting house. It's pretty amazing what people can do. And so we stood in lines and tracked around and watched, looked at gingerbread houses. I'm not going to lie to you. There's a couple of them I could have made. Um, I, I definitely could have done better than some of the six-year-old uh, entries. Um, and then most of the entries, even of the six-year-olds, would have beaten me anyway. They're pretty amazing. But this lady, she placed either second or third. She's from Maryland, and she had a very interesting design. And it was of Santa riding an elephant carrying houses to everyone. And, and the whole theme of it is it's a piece called Moving. And the question is, what if everybody really got what they wished for for Christmas? And so she took the most outlandish, in her mind, uh, request that Santa would get something like, I would like a brand new beautiful home. And what if Santa even delivered on these kinds of big gift requests? What would every person really want is what it boils down to. Uh, of course, we have the famous, some like it, some think it's creepy, Santa baby song, and everybody's wanting 54 convertibles, which I, I'm not going to lie, that would be a pretty sweet ride. Um, uh, a sable coat or a book of blank checks. Maybe the platinum mine. What is it that people really, really want, though? Is it more stuff? Is it actually more things? You know, it's interesting because sociologists say that these aren't really what satisfies. Uh, people really want joy, happiness, uh, safety, security. And even that is interesting because uh, if you do leadership studies, they've discovered that most people, now this number is now a moving up because of inflation, uh, but two years ago, as recently as two years ago, if someone were paid about $70,000, $75,000 a year, um, you couldn't make them happier by just giving them raises at work. They had to have something else, time off, experiences, some kind of job security. But throwing another nominal raise, three, $5,000 a year, didn't make them any happier or content which seem to defy logic and understanding. But there's so much more that goes into who we are that simply is not satisfied by just more stuff. But this concept, joy, happiness, subtleness. But as they've done more study, they've realized something even deeper. That's not even what people want. 
you actually get most people to be gut-level honest about what they would really want out of life, they don't even set the bar as high as happiness, joy, or peace, or security. They just want to be neutral. It's really a focus on an avoidance of pain. I don't want to hurt. Just not necessarily, I don't expect a life, or it would be too high to dream of a life where I'm happy all the time, or joyful all the time, or excited all the time. I just want to not be in pain all the time. Physical, emotional, spiritual, mental anguish. But why is that even? Because we recognize that the Bible tells us from Genesis that pain is the result of sin. We live in a sin-fallen world. We will have pain. Even the, one of the greatest joys that can ever exist, uh, a new baby being born, is accompanied now with pain and sorrow. Work, the feeling like you've accomplished something, now comes with sweat and blood. Where it was before it was good work and there was always work in the garden, but well, there wasn't the thorns and thistles associated with it. Even the good things in this world, because of sin, are all tainted with pain, and yet we all quest for neutrality. What is going on there in our hearts? I would continue this morning that what we all want is just to feel normal and included and just in the group. We want to run with the herd. And nothing actually makes you stick out more than pain, loss. Have you ever gone through something intense and you've experienced, I was talking to a friend of mine this week, you've experienced the difference between genuine compassion and pity? Pity doesn't feel good. Pity is, uh, makes you, intensifies hurt and pain. Pity is someone who doesn't really empathize or love you. They feel sorry for you. We don't want to be felt sorry for. We want to still be part of the group. At the core level, what most of us are terrified of is being set apart somehow, and nothing sets us apart like pain does. Makes us stick out. You see, if you happen to go to stores over the last month, or um, I don't know about you guys, we do most of our shopping with Jeff Bezos and Amazon these days. Um, but if you happen to go out and you see someone who is in some way disabled, wheelchair, for example, they stand out. If you've ever had an injury or any kind of obvious disability, you know what this feels like. And if you talk to many people that are struggling this way, what they really want is just to fit in. So when you lose someone, you stick out from the crowd. Your pain separates you. If you have a disease, your pain separates you. If you're sick, your pain separates you. If you've lost a job, your pain separates you. If you lose a relationship, your pain separates you. It makes you stick out. It gives you an obvious limp. Now, what's really hard about this is for many of us, even when it's not obvious, we walk around with this internal sense I don't fit in. And it's ways that we think of ourselves as less than, not enough, not as smart, not as beautiful, not, not, not. Pain makes us stick out. And so we live in this world of pain. We all want neutrality. We won't just want to be part. We, we don't dare to hope for joy and happiness. We, we think we'll have moments of that, but if we could just have it neutral, then we would avoid it. And yet, the hard reality is we live in a world full of pain. We swim in a sea of pain because we swim in a world of sin. What is the real answer? 
What if I tell you this morning that Jesus is the fulfillment of every promise that is intended to cure our exile, our grief, and our defeat? Because he is. Jesus is the ultimate pain destroyer. And so the fact is, we don't follow Jesus because we are these wonderfully smart, beautiful, talented people. We follow Jesus because we are very broken people who have come to realize our brokenness. And that Christ doesn't reject us in our brokenness, but he actually likes to shine his glory through it. And that is his kindness and his love and his grace to us. And so it is exciting then to look and see, how does Matthew point that with a little baby in a manger? Right? So Matthew chapter 2, hopefully you're there with me. Um, and I'm going to read it. There's really three sections that are pretty clearly defined here. And we're going to take them section by section. And we're going to look at each of these. And the first one we're going to look at is the pain of exile. And so I'm just going to read verses 13 through 15. Each one of these are promise that Matthew points out that has now been fulfilled in Jesus. He says this, Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. Now, when they had departed... Who had departed? The wise men. The wise men have shown up. They've worshipped Jesus. They bring you the gifts, gold, frankincense, myrrh, and now they leave a different way. They don't go back and tell Herod the Great because they're afraid that he'll come down and do something terrible or even do something terrible to them. So when they had departed, the wise men have departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother. This is unique and unusual language linguistic structure to emphasize the child first. Matthew is doing this to emphasize the role and the place of the baby. Normally you say the mother and the baby. He says the child and his mother to emphasize the importance and the figure is the child. So rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. It's an interesting word again there. He doesn't just say kill him. He doesn't just say murder him. It is to destroy him. This is hinting at the fact that this is not just Herod's schemes. These would be the schemes of Satan to ruin the kingdom. It's to destroy not just his physical body, but all that he has come to accomplish. And so for the search for the child to destroy him. And he rose. He took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. We don't know if that means that night. We don't know if it's Joseph woke up in the dream got Mary and baby Jesus said, we got to go right now, or if that's simply another night at some point soon, but later to flee away without being seen. And he remained there until the death of Herod. That's 4 BC. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now, uh, just a moment ago, I was pointing out the reality, beginning to introduce you the concept that to be an outcast is really the fear of every person. We want to fit in and belong. There is safety in the herd. I used to joke with guys uh, when I was, I was in charge of a dorm in Bible, in Bible college. I, I was at seminary, and there's these guys. They'd want to ask girls out, and I pointed out to them that girls move in packs, right? It's like hard to get one separate to ask them out. And like the, the last thing in the world any young 20s guy wants to do is to approach a, a pack of six or eight girls and ask one of them out in the middle. Um, if, if you ever had the courage to do that, dude, God bless you. I did that once. I got punished for it and never did it again, right? Um, that was never going to happen again. So they move and hurt for safety. There's a sense of safety. Uh, gangs develop as a wrong response to danger looking for safety. Uh, we want safety. We want to be part of the herd. Pain, there is pain in being an outcast. Uh, Dr. Jordan Peterson, he is a pretty famous 
current secular psychologist, he uses an illustration from the world to picture this, and he uses the illustration of zebras to illustrate how much we all want to belong and fit in. Um, why are zebras striped? Because it's camouflage, right? Uh, that's, that's what we're always told. I don't know if you've ever seen a zebra in the world they live in. They will live in a world of browns and greens. <laughs> like, I'm not colorblind. White and black stripe sticks out. They just do. But they're not camouflaged to fit into their surroundings. They're camouflaged to fit into the herd. You see, because all their predators, their natural predators, lions and hyenas, for example, they like to do what? They like to eat the weak and the infirm. They like to eat the very old or the very young. They, they, so what they do, and, and this has been documented and, and noticed by scientists, is when they're attacking a, an animal, a particular kind of animal, they will center on one. Lions don't hunt the herd. They hunt one in the herd. Well, the problem is, is zebras camouflage. They can't pick out one. It's like they can't get together and say, we're going after that one because they can't tell them apart. And they waste all their time and energy chasing after a whole herd instead of picking out one. And so what's interesting is scientists run into the same problem. They want to go and they want to study zebras in their natural habitat, and they can't because they can't identify them. So they've come up with all these different ways. And one of the ways is they go up and they'll actually paint a number or paint a symbol on the side of a zebra. We're going to study, we'll call him Bob, Bob the zebra. And so how do we study, how do we know which one's Bob? They all look the same to us through our binoculars. So we paint, oh, now we put a red star on Bob. Now we know. It never worked. You know why? The lions always came and killed Bob. Because now they could get together and say, we're after the one with the red star on it. I'm not kidding you. It's amazing. Their camouflage is to fit in to the crowd. Because in zebra world, the last thing in the world you want to do is to stick out. I remember the first time that clicked in my brain. And it was December of my first grade year. And I showed up at school. We had moved, new school. Excuse me, it was January. Uh, we stayed, stayed at my old school through Christmas. And then January, I walked into this brand new school. So I don't know, I don't know how first graders are. Were they like six, seven, something like that? And I walk into the school. And I was the only kid that hadn't been in kindergarten with all the rest of the kids. And on top of that, because I switched schools, they were concerned about my speech development and my reading. So they would come and get me during reading time and take me out of the class. I stood, I felt like I stood out. I was the only one that didn't know the games they played at recess. I, didn't, I, I felt different. And I knew, even, even as a child that small, I remember feeling the intensity of just wanting to belong. Now I'm 49. Guess what I've realized? It never goes away. It never stops. I go away for my graduation. I go to pick up my robes. The Velcro for the sleeves of my robes have been so used. You rent these robes. Have been so used my leaves wouldn't stay shut. I'm like, and like I went to them. I'm like, hey, like, something's wrong here. And the one lady, she looked at me. She goes, well, maybe you could just kind of hold it closed with your hand. Like, I want to be that guy, right? Like, I want to walk across the stage holding my sleeves. Like, what are we talking about? Can I just, like, I'm not looking for something special. I just want to fit in. 
We all know the fear of sticking out, don't we? There may be not any better word to describe that than exiled. You are an outcast. To be an outcast is to be at risk. It's to be the Hagar and Ishmael sent out into the wilderness. You are an outcast. The scapegoat, when they would, Yom Kippur, when they would celebrate the Day of Atonement, they would put the sins on a scapegoat and send it out of the camp. This is why Jesus is crucified outside of the city, because he is like the scapegoat sent out. You don't belong, is what it's saying. It is to be exiled. Israel was exiled. They were in bondage in Egypt under cruel taskmasters, enslaved. They were outcasts from the promised land. Matthew's prophetic fulfillment here teach us, teaches us that Jesus is the restorer of the exiled. He knows what it's like to be an outcast and yet one who comes in. And so the circumstances of the flight of the family, just they're fairly obvious. Um, King Herod the Great, he's paranoid. He's the same guy that kills his own, some of his own sons because he's afraid that they're going to take over the throne. So he absolutely has no qualms about killing this baby. He's enraged about this being, about being duped. He's enraged about this supposedly being the real king of the Jews. Remember, he is a, a Moabite, an Edomian, and so he's not really a Jew, and so he's always trying to set himself up this way. Uh, the prophecy from, from Numbers that points out them following a star goes on to say that he's the star and the scepter that will crush the head of Moab. It's like, so he is enraged. He's a paranoid guy. He wants to kill these babies. And so he orders ultimately the death. What Matthew is laying out for us is that this is a realistic fear. This isn't paranoia on Joseph's part. He's not making this up. It's another angel in a dream. Joseph promptly obeys. And so what he's starting to do, he's starting to link Jesus geographically in this moment to the nation of Israel. Uh, One of the things that figures prominently in Matthew's birth story is the geography. You get Bethlehem, you have Judea, you have Nazareth ultimately, you have Egypt. You have all of these locations that are very, very important. And so as he's linking Jesus to these geographic locations, he is building a bridge linking to Jesus to Israel as a nation. Why? Does it matter? Is it important? Absolutely. Uh, Let me come at it from another direction. What is the church called in the New Testament? We are the what of Christ? The bride, right? There's all these names for us. We're a field in Corinthians, um, but we are the bride in Ephesians. What was Israel? Well, I'll give you a hint. When they are sent into captivity and they come out and they return to their idolatry, God says this, because of your idolatry, I divorce you. And now suddenly we have the bride of Christ. It doesn't mean that God has lost a love for an affection for true Israel, but this is why when you read through Hebrews and Romans, true Israel, we are now all truly true sons of Abraham, right? What was Israel also called? They were called the sons of God, the sons and daughters. This is my people, and yet they are a child who continually rejects. Jesus is the perfect son. 
And so Jesus lives his whole life under the law, perfectly fulfilling every part of the law. He is the fulfillment of the law. doesn't come to do away with the law, but to fulfill the law, to show its goodness and its rightness and revealing our sinfulness. But he fulfills every part of it. Israel abandons God. They are a chosen child. Jesus comes as the perfect child. And so Matthew is linking all this imagery for us to help us to understand what we just read a few minutes ago in Luke, that Christ is the fulfillment of all. You can see him through all the Old Testament. And one of these is this moment of exile. And so we can see it even a little clearer in what Matthew is quoting. So what he's quoting is Hosea 11, verse 1. Out of Egypt I called my son. And so uh, there's another prophecy he is uh, going back to and referencing, but but we'll do Hosea first because that's the clearest quotation for Matthew. It stands out as the tenderness of this promise. The word that he uses there that he's calling his son is this affectionate title. It's the first time that Christ is referred to this way as ultimately the son of God. Not just the son of Abraham, not just the son of David, but the son of God. Jesus now is standing in the place of all of Israel. Israel, who lived in Egypt under bondage, and God calls them out of Egypt. Jesus now is sent into the land of bondage, and God the Father will call him from it. The entire journey of Israel from leaving Egypt, traveling through the wilderness, and entering the promised land becomes a New Testament picture of our salvation journey. The book of Hebrews makes that very clear to us. It is like we leave the bondage of sin to enter the glorious heaven, This is why there's so many uh, spirituals sung even in in our own nation. Uh, Slaves came up with all these spiritual songs that reference their freedom from slavery going into the promised land, crossing the Jordan. They understood the imagery of moving from captivity to freedom. And, And the New Testament tells us that's really an image of what it's like to become a follower of Christ, to leave and abandon and run away from, to have your chains broken of your sinfulness and to walk in freedom now in Christ. And Christ is a living illustration of this. This is what Hosea is saying is this is really important for us to understand. We need word pictures. Most people sleep through a sermon until you get to an illustration. You wake up. Why? Because you want a story. You want a word picture. You want something to help you remember and envision what it's like. The journey of Israel is every person's journey spiritually. To be in Egypt is to be far away. It's to be at the mercy of another person. It's to be a refugee, an exile, an outcast. It's to be in need and need of power greater than yourselves. You remember when Moses goes and God sends him and Moses stands there and says, let my people go. And Pharaoh doesn't just say, ah, sounds like a good plan. Let him go. There is a massive war that takes place. You even have these moments of sorcerers trying to imitate through Satan's power what Moses is demonstrating as God's power culminating uh, in this massive death moment as the firstborn child is slaughtered throughout the land unless you are atoned for under the atonement of Christ, the blood of the lamb. What sets us free? The blood of the lamb. What breaks the chains of our sinful bondage? The work of Christ on our behalf, not our work, his work. Not our love, his love. Not our power, his power. 
We are powerless to rescue ourselves. We, we reject the notion that we are saved by good works. We, we could never work enough. We could never do enough good. We can put as, many, as much money in the, in the bell-ringing Santas outside of the stores we want to. We can give as much as we want to to the homeless shelters. We can give as much as we want to the, to the hurting, to the needy. We can send as much as we can to refugees around the world and the impoverished and the starving. And all these are good things to do, but they do not earn us freedom from our sin. We are in bondage and in desperate need of someone else's power. To be called out of Egypt is a declaration that God the Father is the one who calls out all exiles. All those who are outcasts, all those who are in bondage in their sin. What's interesting though is in Hosea, right on the heels of this promise in Hosea 11.1, is God's word recites how his children didn't actually keep up their end. And so in Hosea 11, he says he calls the son out of Egypt. And then by Hosea 11.2, guess what they've done? They've run back to idolatry. And it foreshadows not just, not just historically referencing their journey out of Egypt, but it's foreshadowing what they're going to do after their captivity in Babylon. They go into another exile, into another bondage. And we just finished studying Nehemiah, so you know this. They come back, and God sets up the city, and God sets up the temple, and God sets up the walls. And pretty quickly, what do they do? Return to idolatry. Run right back to it. They fall again and again and again. But yet where they fail, and if we're honest, where we fail as well, Jesus the promised son does not. He never wavers. Just like the church is the perfect bride in Ephesians, that Christ is now washing pure with the, with the word, and the only ones who are the bride are those that are believers, and so they are the perfect bride where Israel failed. Jesus is the perfect son where Israel failed. He is the fulfillment. He never sins. He's never untrue. In fact, part of the very power that he has to rescue us is his sinless perfection. So Jesus is shown to be the perfect son where Israel was the failed child. But then thirdly, Matthew is alluding to another prophecy. Now, I found this fascinating as I was studying through this. Matthew spent lots of times with this guy named Balaam. You might remember Balaam. Balaam is this guy that's a prophet for hire. Uh, the people would pay him money and then he would pronounce some prophecy for you or against your enemies. So the enemies of Israel try to hire Balaam to curse Israel. Uh, and so Balaam's like, fine, sounds like a good plan. I like the money. Send me the money and I'll send you this piece of cloth that I prayed over anointed with oil and it will guarantee to heal you. No, I'm just kidding. It's, it's a modern day iteration of Balaam. Uh, send me money. That's what I'm in this for. So Balaam's like, great, I'll take your money. Balaam's the, the same guy, you remember, that has the donkey that yells at him in the middle of the road at one point? Like, this is Balaam. Balaam's a character. So Balaam has three prophecies, three oracles, it says. And one of those oracles or prophecies was that would rise up a scepter and a star would deliver them. That was the prophecy of the three wise men. Well, guess what? There's another one that says, out of Egypt, I'm going to call out my son. And so he's supposed to be cursing Israel, but he goes to open his mouth. God's spirit takes over, and the only thing that comes out is good things. And this is one of the prophecies. But I want to read this to you, Numbers 24, verse 8, because I want to read to you the power that's displayed. God brings him out of Egypt. 
It is for him like the horns of the wild ox. He shall eat up the nations, his adversaries, and shall break their bones in pieces and pierce them through with his arrows. Jesus is the perfect son who comes out of captivity. He's the ultimate, it's this ultimate record scratch, flip the script kind of moment where the captive becomes the powerful deliverer of the oppressed. This is the trope that's, that's marched out in, like in every book, young adult book series. <clears throat> he is the one that everyone despises that now becomes the conquering hero. It's like name a book series and that's the story. Percy Jackson, a rejected kid, becomes a hero. Harry Potter, rejected kid, becomes the hero. So let's flip the script kind of moment. We love redemptive kind of moments where the underdog wins in the end. We love it. Why do we love it? Because it's written on the very hearts of all of humanity. Because it's the story of Christ. The baby, running away in exile into Egypt, comes back like a powerful wild ox destroying all of his enemies. Our sin is our captivity. The truth is this, switching schools is not what made me an outcast. Robes with Velcro sleeves that don't close is not what makes me an outcast. Your intellect, your attractiveness, your physical or mental abilities, your ethnicity, your marital status, your children, none of these are what make us outcasts. These are remnants. These are ripples in the pond. What truly makes us outcasts is our sinfulness. That's what holds us in bondage. That's what sets us apart. It's our, it's our awareness of our badness. Yeah, you know, I actually don't think, uh, the older I get, that um, I think most thinking people, like well-reasoned people, understand that, that you've got issues. You think wrong things, you do wrong things, you do bad things, you think bad things. All your goodness doesn't make up for all your badness, that we are sinners, and it is our sinfulness that puts us in captivity. Even in the life of a believer, we, we live in our unredeemed flesh as of yet, and so we struggle. Paul pictures this struggle in language of captivity. <clears throat> in Romans 7, he says this, But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Jesus comes to deliver us from the exile and the enslavement that our sin puts us under. There is a hope that brings us near. It brings us out of exile and makes us apart. The coming of Christ is a declaration that Christ has come to bring us out of our captivity as a tender father. He says, out of Egypt, I called my son. Can I just tell you this morning, if you don't know Christ, God is calling you, come to me, my son or my daughter. And if you do know Christ this morning, you are no longer in exile or an outcast. You have been brought near and brought into the family of God. Christ knows our bondage is deep. The chains are strong. The slave master of our sin holds us fast, and so he comes conquering. There's a wonderful Christmas song I love, Glory in the Darkest Place. 
reminds us of some of these deep truths. It says, you came to set the captives free, a morning star of joy and peace. Why does this darkness feel so deep? Why can't our weary spirits see? Out of the depths of silent night, a Savior born, a mother's sigh. The darkness trembled at the star, a beam of hope for troubled hearts. You came to make your blessings known and bear our curse of death alone. You came to share our suffering so in our sorrow we could sing glory, glory, glory in the darkest place. Have you known the power of God to bring you freedom from the captivity of your sin? It's his power, not yours. It's his love, not yours. It's his glory, not ours. He calls you this Christmas to be free in Christ. In Hebrews, he pictures it as people coming from captivity to freedom. He talks about Abraham and these saints of old. He says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he's prepared for them a city. You know, the truth is, the Bible says we are not yet who we appear to be, but that will become obvious when Christ returns. Following Christ is like running around like a zebra with a big red star painted on your side as long as we're in this world. But there will come a day when all is revealed and it will be shown we're no zebra. (laughs) We're children of the risen king. Jesus is the fulfillment of every promise to cure our exile, our grief, and our defeat. Matthew doesn't stop there, though. He goes to another one. We see this in Matthew 2, verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. And so let's talk about the pain, not just of exile, but then the pain of grief. There are circumstances surrounding this grief. Again, they are fairly obvious. He turns the effects of Herod's murderous decision uh, with the limitation of the region, the age limit, how many children were killed, we don't know. Uh, Best scholarly estimates, somewhere around 20 in that region would have probably fallen under this based upon the population density. However, we acknowledge that that is a complete conjecture and guess. It's, It's based upon scholarly research, but it also, we're not sure where we're at in this two year window, right? We're not sure if Jesus has just been born. We're not sure if he's two years old. We're not sure if the wise men traveled two years before the birth of Jesus or if they traveled two years after the birth of Jesus. And so we know when when Joseph and Mary came to the region, it was a much higher population density because people had come back for the census. We don't know. It wasn't enough to merit secular historians writing about it. That's not unusual. Secular historians did not record what they would have deemed a small event like this. They are focused rather on big uh, global political, geopolitical events. But this absolutely falls in line with this character to the point that even secular historians say, yeah, that's totally believable. 
It's not really debatable. We believe it as believers because the Bible says it. But even secular historians would say, yeah, that's really likely. It would be completely doable to see these soldiers march in, find out where all the children are, drag this little toddler outside and cut their throat. There's a brutal, brutal order. And so we have this unfortunate mingling, this, this absolute tainting of something good. The birth of Christ with the slaughter of the innocents. And as Matthew is quoting this, he is again pointing back to prophecy. And so we have this in Jeremiah, and it's in Jeremiah 31.15 is where the quotation comes from. And there's some details in this that can help us to understand what he's talking about. There's a voice heard in Ramah, but I thought this was Bethlehem. What are we talking about here? And so let's unpack this a little bit. Uh, in modern history, uh, this would be like an American standing at uh, the 9-11 memorial, this area. is just grief, right? It just represents sorrow. Uh, several years ago, uh, my son and I took a trip, one of my sons, and we went to the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, Arlington National Cemetery. There's just a somberness. Uh, there's a sobriety that infects everyone standing there. Uh, then a few years after that, my, my daughter and I took a trip, and we went to New York City, and so we spent time at the 9-11 Memorial. Now, this, all this happened before any of my children were born, but I think any of us of age, we know exactly where we're at. I was sitting in my dorm apartment that morning. I had to go back and do a room check. A guy said, hey, I just heard something on the news. Something weird has happened. I didn't leave my room the rest of the day, just watching the events unfold. And so to stand where it happened, there's just this grief, right? Rama was that for them. But why? Well, there's three reasons. Four. First of all, you remember the story of Rachel. Rachel is married to Jacob. Uh, her older sister has all these children. Rachel has none. She's infertile. She's the beloved wife, but cannot produce an heir for her husband. She is sorrowful. And then God opens her womb, and she gives birth to Joseph. It's a wonderful moment. Fast forward a few years, she's pregnant again, and she is trying to deliver Benjamin. And Genesis records for us that Benjamin is breach. And so complications obviously can affect every delivery, and in a breach baby, because of the position of the baby, there can be a tearing of the uterine lining and massive bleeding. This is what happens. And so Rachel is, would have been bleeding to death. And as she bleeds to death, the last thing that she says with her last bit of energy, she yells out the name of the baby, Benoni, which means son of my sorrow, and she dies. And Jacob can't fathom calling his son, son of my sorrow. And so he changes it from Ben-Onai to, to Benjamin, Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. Trying to honor his wife's declaration while not saddling his son with that for the rest of his life. And Rachel becomes this picture of grief in Israel. 
Um, and where she dies is in Rama. Rama, if, if you can see it on the map there, is about five miles north of, Jer of Jerusalem, and Bethlehem is about five miles south of Jerusalem. So they're same region, but about 10 miles separate. But Rama, from Rachel on, becomes this picture of the place of grief, kind of like our 9-11. Because it's the death of his chosen wife, and it's in childbirth when it's supposed to be just this wonderful, happy moment, and it's just, it's horrible. And then Jacob, so Jacob buries her there, and that's where her tomb is. And then Jacob later, that's where he's at when they come and tell him Joseph has died. And the grief is an inconsolable grief. Because you can't fix death. You, you, you can't get them back. You fast forward, and Rama was the road that when you either wanted to take captives, get this, to Assyria, to the north, or to Babylon, to the east, you had to go through Rama. And so history says the mothers would gather at this place as their sons are being marched off into captivity. It's the same as death. It's an inconsolable grief. It's an incurable wound of the soul. Any of us in this room who have lost someone dear, we know this to be true. We know it. You're not strange when grief hits you at times like a wave. They say something like every seventh wave at the shore is the big one. No matter the tide, about every seventh wave is a big wave. The hard thing with grief is sometimes you feel like you're standing ankle deep in the water. It's always with you. But its waves are unpredictable and sometimes they hit you and they knock you off your feet. That's grief. That comes at inconvenient times. C.S. Lewis does a wonderful job talking about this at the death of his wife, whose name was Joy, the death of Joy. And he talks about just the, the inconsolable nature of grief and the loss and how do you deal with it. And so it became Rachel and became Jacob, became mothers of the captives. And so to say Rama, weeping in Rama, all the Jews would have understood. Matthew's not suddenly confused, mixing up Rama and Bethlehem. He's trying to depict inconsolable grief. What would the grief be of a mom in Bethlehem? How else do you describe it? Someone killing your little baby boy right in front of you. Because of some nameless child, as far as you know, the son of Joseph and Mary, whom you don't even know, and they're not even around now. There's this deep sorrow that's associated with this. The quotation in Jeremiah is actually stunning how accurately it speaks in their lives. Jeremiah 31 is actually a chapter that's all about God's victory. Um, and so, interestingly enough, verses 1 through 14 of Jeremiah 31 is all about how God's going to restore Israel and how he comforts Israel and how he cares for Israel and how he's going to be their God, they're going to be his people. Um, he's going to send a Messiah, he's going to care for them. Uh, he will restore them to the land, to peace and prosperity, this whole land flowing with milk and honey that's going to be theirs. You are my people, the weeping prophet, Jeremiah is saying this. Verses 1 through 14 are all about that. Get this now, verses 16 through 20 are the same thing. Same themes, peace, strength, 
security, safety, God's your people, and then plunked right in the middle of it, verse 15, is inconsolable grief. I don't, this is one of those moments that's like, I'm like, maybe I should preach the whole sermon on Jeremiah 31 because that's our existence, isn't it? Like, I'm just gonna be honest with you. Even the New Testament acknowledges that, that when we lose someone that we know, we know they're in heaven, we know they're in glory. They, they clearly were a believer, they were a follower of Christ, they're in heaven, this is wonderful. Even the New Testament acknowledges we still grieve even though we know we're gonna see them. Because the present, there is a sorrow of loss. It's what the Bible is declaring in Jeremiah 31. That all the hope of the future, this is God saying this now, all the hope of the future, all the promises I have for you, I know and I acknowledge in the moment you're living with in time. It's because God's eternally stands outside of time. But you and I live in time. And right now, it stinks. It hurts. And we sorrow. And that's okay. If you ever have someone come to you and say, well, you're a believer, you should not be sorrowing. Okay? <clears throat> I'm going to tell you how you respond to that. You ready? Put them on the list with the same dudes that will send you the prayer hanky. They know not of what they speak. Jesus comes and he is acquainted with our sorrows and our griefs. Sorrow at the injustice of it all. We sorrow and grieve sometimes because of injustice. Sorrow at the loss. We sorrow because things are taken from us. People are taken from us. Hopes and dreams. We sorrow. We sorrow over poverty. We sorrow at a world full of brokenness, a world full of sin. This is sometimes how we feel like we live, in unrelenting sorrow and suffering. So what hope is there for these mothers? What hope is there for your and my deepest sorrows and grief? There is only one. There is one hope. His name is Jesus Christ. There is only one who can come and conquer death, hell, and the grave. Even David receives comfort from this in the death of his son. What does he say? And, and it doesn't just eliminate sorrow. It doesn't eliminate grief. I'm never going to look at someone sorrowing and saying, uh, this truth will immediately make all the tears stop. But he does say this, you will not come to me, but I will go to you. And Jesus makes promises, suddenly starts making promises like, I'm going to restore all that you've lost. If you've lost family and lands and property, I'm going to restore it all to you a hundredfold and more. God would be a cruel God if, if all he did was stand apart from sorrow. And look down at us and say, well, we'll all be better one day. But he is not a God who stands apart from us. He is a God who came and dwelt among us. And he is a God who knows the intensity and the pain of loss and grief. Why doesn't Joseph show up anymore? He's clearly a faithful, righteous, obedient man. At some point, 
Jesus lost his earthly adoptive dad. Jesus experienced the loss and the rejection of his brothers. We have the wonderful uh, epistle of James written. That's one of Jesus' brothers who writes it. He didn't believe while Jesus was alive. His own brothers at one point said, you should go down to Jerusalem. And it was part of the plot. They thought, they'll kill him down there. That'll set him straight. That was his own brothers. Jesus understands. When Jesus uh, experiences there with Mary and Martha the death of Lazarus, and the Bible says Jesus wept, famously it is this word full of deep uh, grief and anguish and anger all at the same time. What was Jesus so upset about, knowing he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead? Because he's now just soaking in the grief and the sorrow of those that are closest to him, as well as visibly right in front of him, the power and the presence of what sin does. And he comes to overturn it all. There is a promise that he will one day conquer over everything. He will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he would take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. Do you know what it's like to have your tears wiped away? I love in Romans as he builds to this climactic moment when he talks about the sorrow of our lives and the deep griefs. In Romans 8, 31, he says this, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Jesus has promised to wipe every tear from every eye, to right every wrong, to cure every injustice, to restore all that has been lost. Jesus is the fulfillment of every promise, to cure our exile, our griefs as well. If we were with these mothers in Bethlehem, what would we say to them? He loves you, and he cares for you, and he will wreak justice upon this king and these soldiers and you will see the face of your child again. There's a comfort that happens here. Some of you grew up in homes where if you were hurt, you were told, go band-aid your own knee. Go fix yourself. Stop crying. Men don't cry. And you can probably mark out in your life moments where somebody came to you and put their thumb against your cheek and wiped tears from your eyes and put their arm around you and comforted you. Uh, you've, I've, I've passed it here a while now, right? 17 years. Some of you know that I'm not a hugger. Then my wife got cancer. I'm a hugger. I'm right now. Because there's a profound power in someone physically comforting you. There's a grace to it, a kindness to it. Can I just say, I don't want to cry in heaven. But I'm okay with crying if that means Christ holds my face in his hands and wipes tears from my eyes. As he will. Because he comes as the cure of grief. We've got one last promise. And it is the pain of defeat. Verses 19 through 23. When Herod died... Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. 
And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. And so again, we can tackle it the same way. What are the circumstances? Again, pretty obvious. God tells Joseph, take him back. Herod's dead. He finds out Archelaus is ruling. I don't want to go there. When Herod died, four of his children become tetrarchs, and all of his land is divided up, kind of like when Alexander the Great died. So Herod the Great dies, and all of his land gets divided up into four geographic locations, and Archelaus rules this kind of supreme, the best part of the land there in Judea. Archelaus was just as bad as his father. How bad was Archelaus? Well, one Passover celebration when the city of Jerusalem swelled and the whole region swelled because Jews were supposed to trek back if they at all could in order to celebrate it. They all come to celebrate this. And Archelaus is afraid that there might be an uprising. So Archelaus sends his soldiers into the camps, the places where they'd set up the tents outside of the city of Jerusalem to be able to celebrate. And they slaughtered over 3,000 people because he was afraid there might be an insurrection. This is Archelaus. So Joseph is like, I don't think this guy's any better than Herod. So Joseph says, I'm going to Nazareth. This is why he ends up in Nazareth. But there is again a redemptive history here of brokenness. Now, if you look down, the very last verse um, has caused, caused many scholars and theologians consternation for almost 2,000 years. He went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, as I've walked through there, through this passage this morning, I've pointed out to you the first one was from Hosea 11 with emphasis back towards numbers. Matthew specifically tells you Jeremiah in verse 19. Excuse me, verse 18. Here he just says generically the prophets. So everybody wants to know what's he quoting. There is no verse that says he'll be called a Nazarene. Now, you have to take my word for it. But you can pick up a commentary, or better yet, you can read the entire Old Testament. You're not going to find the verse. And Matthew, by saying the prophets, is telling us something. He's telling us there's what we call, theologians, what we call a meta-narrative, a big story that said, oh, Messiah's going to come from Nazareth. Now, much of understanding New Testament, Old Testament prophecy is as you read the New Testament, you look back, and we have this phrase for it, right? Hindsight is 2020. Now we see all kinds of things. And Luke, these guys were faithful people on the road to Emmaus. Jesus had to unpack it. They missed a lot of it. Matthew is saying, oh, wow, this is amazing. Now I see in this big picture story, this is what was happening. So where does he even come up with this from? Or is Matthew just like creatively making up all of his own stuff? Well, we know that Matthew's writing inspired. The Holy Spirit's writing through him, so we know that's not it. What is it? There are three possibilities. Three. I'm going to give them all three to you. You're like, we're almost out of time. I know, we're getting there. I'm going to land this plane. Hang in there. Number one, Nazareth the branch. Guess what the root word, uh, and as Matthew records it, he's emphasizing this, the root word for Nazareth is this is Nazar, and it is pointing, and guess what? It's the same word for branch. Just like Bethlehem is the city of bread, say Nazareth is like saying city of branches almost. So potentially Matthew is thinking of the prophecy in Isaiah 11.1. 1. There shall come forth a shoot or a branch 
Thank you, SV, for not making my job easier this morning. But there shall come forth a shoot, a branch from the stump of Jesse. A branch from his root shall bear fruit. What's he mean? If you cut a tree down, you're not getting any more tree. And this is what God is saying happens to Israel. They get cut down. The line of David's cut down. The nation's cut down. There's no life in this stump. And out of the stump comes this new branch. And this is the Messiah who comes to deliver us all and comes to be a tree and a bold tree. Jesus begins, we, we begin to get these mixed metaphors that Jesus speaks about. And you might remember in his kingdom parables later in Matthew, he describes the church as the kind of place that will have humble beginnings that will grow up and it will fill the sky and it will have branches so that other birds can come and nest upon her and all this and provide shade and shelter for everyone. So we have these mixed metaphors. What is it saying the branch of Jesse is life from death. To make it very clear, victory from defeat. It could be that. We don't know. It could be that. could be the second one. Nazarenes, the rejected ones. Again, the branch... Imagery, Isaiah 53, 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant, a branch, like a root out of a dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. The Nazarenes were incredibly disrespected people. They were viewed as country bumpkins. Uh, modern language, they're a bunch of rednecks. They're not too smart. They're dumb. They're not intelligent. They're uneducated. It's a broken town full of uneducated people. Jesus gets no respect because he's from there. They actually say things like, isn't he from Nazareth? Why does this matter? Because broken people, listen now, want a broken hero. That's why we like all those stories. That's why we're enthralled with the underdog. I mean, let's be honest. If Jesus showed up as the six foot five, blonde haired, blue eyed, muscle bound guy that instantly memorized all of the Old Testament, always was top of his class, summa cum laude, and everybody knew it. And he rises through the ranks and he's like a reborn King Saul. You're like, of course people followed you. But I don't know what that world's like. Because I don't feel beautiful and strong and smart. Do you? But it says something altogether different when the son of a carpenter that everybody questioned who his real dad even was who is a tradesman, who is not this attractive model. This is why Hollywood can never actually tell the story of Jesus. Because they've got to cast somebody that's not very attractive. When he is the king, then you see all the powers of God. And so all the defeated people of this world, all the broken people of this world, they rally to Jesus. And so it could be that. 
could be what Matthew's referencing. And it could be a third one. Because there's really only one famous Nazarene in the Bible. And he was a failure. And it could be this because he also is a man that an angel shows up to his parents and says, a son will be born to you. And the language is identical to the kind of language that Matthew and ultimately Luke will use. A son will be born. And this is Samson. And he will be a man of incredible power and incredible strength. But he will violate every covenant and every vow that he has. And he's supposed to be a judge and a hero, but ultimately he's a failure. And I do know Hebrews 11, there's a redemptive arc of even Samson. He's at the end. He prays for repentance. And in a moment of suicidal effort, kills more of the enemies than he ever did in his whole life. But by and large, Samson is a failure. And so we have a failed tree, a failed city, and a failed hero, a defeated tree, a defeated city, a defeated hero. So which one is it? I don't know. I think it's probably all three because Matthew says, the prophets, and he uses meta-narrative, that we should not be shocked that our Messiah comes from humble beginnings. What does defeat feel like? Defeat feels like you're the painted zebra, constantly hunted. Defeat feels like you're the outcast, the rejected one, the one who has no power, position, or wisdom to deliver yourself. Defeat feels like being broken, shattered, without the glue to put it all back together again. What do you really hope for this Christmas? What do you hope for this year? What do you hope for today? Freedom from your captivity? Yes, Steve, I'd like to be free from my bondage of sin. Free from your grief? Victory? There is a hero here who came to a defeated people. There is a hero here who came from a rejected town. There is a hero here who restored what a failed hero with all the strength of ten men could not do. God has promised to rescue us, to bring victory out of defeat. He has promised to come and deal death the final blow. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. There is a sweet innocence. There is a freshness. There is a reminder of the ongoing nature of life when a baby is born. Last night we were at Saluda Shoals waiting to go through the lights, and this guy in front of us, in the car in front of us, he got out of his car and he went to the back and he got out of the car seat what had to be a very new baby. Very fresh, right? Very tiny. And he saw it, I always saw it was open as the front passenger door and he clearly handed baby to mom. And then he got older child out of the car and played for the next 45 minutes. I'm sure so baby and mom could have some nursing time. There's just a sweetness in these moments, right? I'm walking with my kids, and I see this little baby in a stroller, and it was tiny. I was driving with my wife in Asheville last week. There was a lady walking on the road, and Beth Ann noticed. She goes, boy, that baby is little. I mean, just tiny. There is just a joy and a delight at the freshness, the innocence, the sweetness of a newborn baby. Well, in the birth of this baby that we celebrate also came the answer to our captivity and to our grief and into our defeat. Because his birth meant victory overcoming all of our sorrow. 
Jesus is the fulfillment of every promise to cure our exile, our grief, and our defeat. May we celebrate him this Christmas season. Father,